Hello, everyone, and welcome back to Content Classroom, a podcast created and produced by the Virginia Council for the Social Studies, where we connect expert analysis on a specific topic related to social studies and then supplement that analysis with guidance from master teachers on how to apply it to the classroom. I'm your host, Sam Futrell, and we are so glad that you are joining us today. It is February, if you are listening to this when it is first released, arguably the darkest and dreariest month of the year. But I am here to tell you that this episode is going to lift you right up. Today, I will be sharing a recording of our January Scholars Hour event, which focused entirely on social and emotional learning for students and teachers. We had three experts on our January Scholars Hour panel, Dr. Patrick Tolan from the University of Virginia, where he is Director Emeritus of Youth Next, the UVA Center to Promote Effective Youth Development. He championed the center's mission to, since its inception in 2009 through the summer of 2017 to promote healthy youth development, to enhance the potential of youth as productive citizens, and to reduce developmental risk through focused research, training, and service. Also with us on this panel was Ashley Bullock, a teacher at Chesapeake Public Schools, who is a doctoral student at UVA and whose passions center around equity in education and trauma-informed practices in education. And finally, our last panelist for this event was Carol Payton, a third grade teacher at Sunrise Valley Elementary School whose central focus is the implementation of responsive classroom teaching and the Ruler Program from Yale University. It was an incredible session in which we explored and discussed strategies on how teachers and students can manage stress and practice mindfulness in the classroom. It was really valuable to me, and I know I have been able to implement uh, some of these strategies already, and I really do think that it has helped my students uh, in the past couple of weeks. And also, if you haven't attended any of our Scholars Hour events, they are live events hosted virtually by VCSS every third Thursday of the month so that teachers across the state can connect and engage in discussions with experts on topics near and dear to us. You can always send me an email directly or follow VCSS on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter to get information on how to attend any of these sessions. Our handle for all of those platforms is VA Social Studies, all one word. And as always, if you enjoy this episode, please like us on iTunes and Spotify and give us a five-star review as it helps others find our podcast. Thank you so much for listening, and I hope you enjoy today's episode on social and emotional learning. So, uh, Carol, I think we'll start with you, if that's okay. Uh, I think it's important for us to all just start with defining social and emotional learning. Uh, mm -hmm. I think for me, sometimes I get a little lost in the literature on it. So if you could, what is social emotional learning? And for you, how does it connect to responsive classroom management? Mm -hmm. Well, I'll apologize in advance if my um, teaching assistant barks. Apparently there's something outside and he's really excited about it. So I'm gonna apologize for him. <laughs> and hope that he doesn't have too much to say. So we know teachers that we have traditionally been tasked with instructing children in the major academic areas and, you know, reading, writing, math, science, social studies. And we know that before children can learn any of those things, they need to feel safe in their classrooms. And they need to know that they are seen and heard, not just by their teachers, but also by their peers. There's no state testing uh, that measures students' emotional learning, but we teachers know that it's first 
and most important, to create a caring community. Um, we want our children to have certain emotional competencies. We want them to be able to cooperate and have responsibility and empathy and self-control. And we know that as we get to know those children, we search for ways to meet those emotional needs. So years before I learned about ruler or about responsive classroom, I was looking for ways to support my kids. And so I stumbled upon a bunch of things that came together and have really been helpful. I was doing morning meetings each day to help my students connect with each other. And I understood that logical consequences made more for more meaningful experiences for kids. I saw that engaging lessons with student choice were the most successful ones that I'd done. And I knew that my words made a difference to them. So I came to Sunrise Valley and I had sort of these tools in my belt and um, Sunrise Valley had been long using a program called Responsive Classroom, which I thought was magnificent um, because I learned so much from it, but it also affirmed a lot of the things that I had been already doing. Um, so I found that there are four parts of the responsive classroom piece that really helped me as a teacher. Number one, thinking about developmental awareness. Um, we know that we, have, we teach a certain grade, but there may be different ages within that grade. And so we look more deeply at what's appropriate at a certain age. Um, we wanna have engaging academics and we want effective behavior management. And we wanna create a positive community for all of our learners. So you can see that all of those pieces of responsive classroom kind of come together. There's a social emotional part of it, and then there's an academic part of it. And so together, when we put all that together, we, get a, we come up with a daily routine that can encourage independence in our children and foster a sense of shared purpose, which is so important. So when we start our year together, we talk a lot about our hopes and dreams. What do we want to do this year? What do we want to accomplish? And then we come up with a list of behaviors that are going to help us support each other in our hopes and dreams. And that's what we call our classroom rules. And we can refer to them together all year long about how we want to take care of each other. And the kids are great. I might do reminders, but the kids remind each other. They hold each other accountable for those rules. And it's really wonderful to see. And then each day we start with a morning meeting where we'll have a greeting to connect with each other and a share because I teach the littles, I teach third grade. So those guys have a lot to share. Um, and then we do an activity and we have a morning message that sort of brings it all together. And then throughout the day, we'll have energizers to give them those brain breaks and a chance to connect with each other again. And then um, Responsive Classroom inserts a quiet time in between our lunch and recess and the rest of our academic day to help them make that transition more smoothly. And then at the end of the day, we come together for a closing circle where we acknowledge the challenges of the day and then we celebrate our successes and all of that together, all of those opportunities to connect and to talk with each other um, about how we're feeling and what we're doing. Those really are a wonderful way for us to create that community that we want with our kids and teach them those skills that, that we need to directly instruct. 
Um, not that doesn't just happen. Social emotion learning doesn't usually just happen. We have to be intentional about it. And it's through those practices that we can do that. So I know that as teachers, we're always on the lookout for best practices to support our students. So RC has been a great way for me to um, begin that with my students. And then I weave in other approaches as they feel right or as I learn more about them. And I find that at the end, I sort of have a, a tapestry of tools that helps me support my students emotionally and feel connected with them so that if they are having something they need to share or a trouble or a worry, it makes it easier for us to support each other as a community. Wow, those were some really applicable, you know, and really actionable ways that teachers can apply that in their classrooms. Mm -hmm. So I love that. I was just wondering, you said one word um, that I think I know what it is, but I'm just wondering if you might give an example, an energizer. What would that mm -hmm. look like in your classroom? Well, right now we're all virtual. So for me, that means stepping away from the computer and moving your body. Um, but when we're in the classroom together, it might be um, singing together or having a dance party or, you know, something informal like that. There are lots of great um, things on the internet for brain breaks where you can get kids thinking and connecting. Um, one of them that we played today was a would you rather kind of game. And it was a travel edition. So I was like, would you rather go to... Um, the DR or Mexico, you know, and then they, depending on what they choose, they have to have some sort of physical motion to indicate their choice. So it's still finding ways to connect with each other um, and share what we're thinking and, and enjoying, but also moving our bodies and um, having that physical break as well. Hmm. Yeah. And that's really important. Even I would say more important now that we're digital and, you know, that so yeah. many schools are virtual. Um, because that is one of the biggest complaints I hear from my students just about their day is that they are sitting, you know, all day long from morning until afternoon. Whereas in the middle school that I teach in, students rotate normally. So at least they're getting up between classes, you know, and getting that time to get out. They're having mm -hmm. recess normally and they're able to get outside. And all of that is an energizer, you know, in a way, mm -hmm. and is just um, a way that they can even connect to their bodies in sort of a mindful way as well. Um, as they're physically switching classes, they can sort of like physically prepare to go to from math to history, from history to Spanish, you know, um, and they don't get that now. So I think all of those things are extremely helpful. Um, so Dr. Tolan, you work at UVA and uh, you've been working there for several years now. And you used to, uh, you, I don't, I can't remember, please correct me if I'm wrong. Did you help found the Youth Next program at UVA? And was the initial director of the program. Yeah, you were the initial director of the Youth Next program at UVA. And now you uh, direct the Compassionate Schools Project. So yeah. I'm, yeah, I'm wondering if you could just tell us a little bit about both of those and how they support adolescent development. Sure. So, so this was a, a, a attempt to try and take what we'd learned from over 25, 30 years of work from lots and lots of researchers and practitioners about what might be important social emotional skills um, for st students to have, but also to integrate it with mindfulness kinds of techniques and awareness, and then also uh, attention to and uh, awareness of 
the importance of physical health and taking care of your body and, and so on. We know, for example, that you know, the biggest health threat for most people is actually poor health habits um, that they form when they're younger and, or the lack of healthy uh, helmet habits. And so we thought that if we could help students do that, that could have a big impact on both their physical and their mental health. And, uh, and, part, and part of that also being uh, focusing some on helping them think about food choice and, and what we call mindful eating. So we looked at what people had done that seemed to work. And then we also married that to uh, having tried to work with schools on, on innovation and introducing new approaches and, and for several decades, recognizing how often that just doesn't take. It doesn't stick there. Either somebody like me comes in with their nice program and carefully tests it. And as long as we bring money and personnel, it's okay. And then as soon as we leave, school goes back to what they were doing or, um, or uh, says, feels glad to have that extra time that we were taking or whatever. And, and on the other hand, then schools are doing lots and lots of things all the time, but not necessarily things that are known to make a difference. So we're trying to move beyond that. So what we did, we partnered with a school system, which is the uh, schools in Louisville to really kind of work on both a very careful scientific study, but also uh, an innovation to education that hopefully would then become a regular part of school. So what we did was rather than try to augment a bit what people were doing in every class or that sort of thing, we took a different approach, which is said, let's create this curriculum that can meet the standards for health education um, and make it the health education class. So it's twice a week for all elementary school students. And um, it covers this integration of social emotional skills, mindfulness and compassion uh, orientation and, and awareness and some skills that come out of that. And then understanding and, and uh, attention to caring for your physical health and well-being uh, and, and particularly uh, with more uh, a particular at, uh, orient focus on uh, eating as a and food choice, uh, tr trying to help people get used to thinking about proportions and what they eat and so on. And so it's integrated into this curriculum and there's, it's a regular part of class. And when they come there at, uh, twice a week, uh, they have a, a teacher who's, who's the health education teacher the class doesn't look like most classrooms because it has mats on the floor um, and uh, the students are engaged in a, in a kind of a sequence of activities that they don't know that they're learning these four things. They just think they're in health class. Um, but the way we've worked the curriculum is to integrate it. So the idea is that to try and make this a regular part of the school, that the students will grow up uh, having this every year and hopefully it will lead to some uh, improvements for those students in self-control and emotional understanding and connection to others and all, all um, those social emotional skills, but also ability to sort of stop and understand and think about themselves in a mindful way and use various kinds of poses and, and things that come out of mindfulness practices that help you with awareness, but also in terms of improving your self-control and your ability to uh, deal with uh, challenges of life, frustrations and emotions and then also developing of habits for healthier living. Um, so that, that's the, the curriculum. And it's been, we're doing a big study to see if, what the impact is uh, with the idea that it took us, it's been ongoing for about seven years. The idea that we're 
wanted to make sure we tested it out before we said to people, hey, we think we have this program you should use. And the, the good news is, is that the school system where we are working with it has now made it a regular part of the education uh, and is expanding it across the school system. So. That's wonderful because I think, you know, social emotional learning, it can definitely get pushed to the back burner a lot um, when teachers, you know, our history, mm -hmm. social studies teachers are trying to get through their curriculum. Um, and, but in reality, the, the practices that you're talking about are, those are lifelong habits that are being created at a young age. And so that is extremely important. Do you know of any, just off the top of your head, any um, specific strategy that was more, that seems like it's being more effective than others in that curriculum? Well, I, I mean, I would say one thing, which is, you know, there's, there's kind of two approaches one can think about, and you've just heard them actually. One is that you try to augment and change the way you manage classrooms. And the other is you try to instill those skills in the students so that when they go to all the other classrooms, they'll bring that with them. And there's not a right or wrong, but there are two different approaches that I think are worth highlighting um, that difference. Uh, you know, what students, there's two things that seem to have stuck with the students pretty quick. One of them is illustrated by, and some of you may know about this idea that uh, you take a, a, a ball that has uh, gold flakes in it and stuff and you shake it all up, or you can do it with a little jar. And that's a way of thinking about what happens when you're upset and how it's hard for you to focus. And so the idea is how to calm down is to wait for it to settle. And that's, and students really connect to that and along, and what we do with that is they do a thing where we have them hold their heart and their belly and, they, and to monitor their breathing. Um, it's, if any of you do yoga or anything like that, you often start with something like this, or it's a simple way to get you start to focus and to, and to count through that. And um, they're, they're able to connect with that right away. So it becomes them learning to control themselves and to understand and manage their emotions rather than them being put into compliance by one of us. Um, and we've had students who, we had one student where uh, the, the principal was telling me that this was one of the kids who was always in trouble, um, came in and she could see he was ramped up and was expecting that he'd be in her office by mid morning. And um, so she took him and down to our classroom and she knew the, 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 this, this ritual. And she, so she took him to the mat and said, you, you stay here and you can do, you know, do the breathing. And, and when you're ready, you can come back out. And he calmed himself down and he, he told her, he said, that's the first time I've ever calmed myself down rather than somebody made me stop. And that was a big change for that young man. So there's, I think that's one. I think the other one that the teachers are finding that students really engage in are uh, in some of the, uh, you, those of you who know down dog, you sort of, you're on your hands and legs, but you're, you've got your belly bent up and you, we have students do that, but they go underneath it. So it's kind of a game, but they learn how to work with each other around it. So it helps with cooperative learning. Um, but uh, I think what the students are really finding is, is that, the, the way the curriculum is built is they get to learn a lot about things that become useful like self-control or uh, understanding what it's like to be new in a school or understanding what it's like to have, you know, settle an argument without a fight um, and things like that. So 
There's a number of those. And, and many of these are in various other curriculums uh, that are out there or in toolboxes that people have for teachers. Yeah, I love all of those because they really do, like you said, center around, you know, the student taking ownership of themselves and really trying to work on that self motivation, that self-control. And those things, I think, like Meredith sort of said in the chat here, that they're beneficial from a social emotional standpoint, but they're also beneficial with academics, you know, that is directly applicable, you know, in middle school, I know we talk a lot about how at a certain point, you know, the teacher can only do so much for you, right? Like you have to take that initiative and you have to move forward yourself and you have to want these things and um, you have to have that, that self-control, that self-motivation. So I think that it's, that's cross-disciplinary for sure. Yeah. Um, yeah. And Ashley, I'm kind of interested to talk to you about, you know, just going back to teachers, we're dealing with our own social emotional learning right now. Um, so many things have been going on in the last year. And one of the, the hardest things I think for all of us, especially in social studies, um, is just dealing with traumatic news and events, you know, and when things come on the news or happen in our world, it is difficult to go to class the next day because I think a lot of us feel the weight um, to communicate those things to our students. And so, um, you know, just even what happened in the Capitol a couple Wednesdays ago, you know, that was hard to go to work the next day and to feel like you were the one responsible for being communicate for communicating that to your students. Um, and so I'm wondering if you have any strategies on how to navigate those difficult issues in the classroom. Yeah, it's a um, fun time to be a history teacher, isn't it, everybody? Um, and, you know, we're doing it in a different platform where it's not just our classrooms, but now we've got grandmothers and moms and dads and different people in um, the background. And so how do we do this well? And so I think one of the things that I have learned is that we have to start with our own self-reflection. So how am I doing with all of this? You know, as a biracial teacher, when I see the Capitol, what is my response? How am I taking care of myself? Am I doing my mindfulness strategies? Am I in a place that I feel like I can talk about this? Um, and also what biases do I might have that might enter into my classroom? Because we know that our classrooms have very diverse students and that there's gonna be a wide range of privilege and power within these conversations. And so I think for me, I always try to start with the self-reflection piece of like, where am I? Do I need to learn more about this topic? Um, a really great self-reflection tool that I learned um, just through certain classes is if I'm trying to learn more about equity, how many authors of color do I listen to? How many podcasts have I listened to? What are my news sources? Am I just a CNN person? Am I NPR? How am I taking all of this in? Um, but it is important that we, we have to talk about it in the classroom, right? Like that is our subject. And so it would be a disservice to do that, um, to not talk about it with students. And so I think 
there's a variety of approaches and I don't necessarily think one is right or wrong. I think you have to know where your headspace is and where your student's headspace is and where they are um, academically and social emotionally if you've built that into your classroom. So I know for a lot of my elementary friends, they will use a lot of books that talk about character development to kind of show, I think there's one called I've Lost My Nut and it talks about how do we solve problems. I know um, for middle school teachers, a lot of times we're gonna look at perspective building and same with high school. Um, and I think the one thing that has really helped me is making sure that as I'm doing this with students, I've set those ground rules um, and that I know what can be debated and what is not gonna be debated. And so policies can be debated, right? Those are gonna have a wide range of things, but we probably all need to be on the same page that racism is wrong. Um, and so understanding where those things can be kind of debated and then how we can set up those conversations for students to take on those different perspectives. Um, I would also encourage you guys and just teachers in general that there's a lot of really good curriculums out there. So you don't have to put this together yourself. So I know that Teaching Tolerance had a lot of resources that came out like as soon as the things on the capitals were happening. Um, UVA just has, has a great new program called the Educating for Democracy. And it goes through um, a teacher toolkit where you have resources. It shows you here's sample lessons you can do with your students. And so that would be my other thing is don't think that you have to do this all alone. There's a ton of Facebook groups. There's a ton of resources out there that you can use to slowly build this in your curriculum. Um, and it is going, it takes time, right? We're building those with students. We're building those connections. And so I would just encourage all of you guys to dive in, dive in slowly. Um, and make sure that you've you've done your part in your research and that we're giving um, the space to students as well with that dialogue. So sometimes it can even be as simple like, hey, how are you guys doing and holding that um, space for them? And recognizing that it's been, you know, I think for Zoom land, it's been kind of an interesting year for that, but as you continue to build those skills and grow, I notice that my students will flourish and that this is the stuff they want to talk about, right? This is the stuff they're seeing and it's relevant to their life. Mm, so many good points there. Um, I think, like you said, starting with self-reflection, so important, really actually making sure that we are, you know, being responsible in looking at multiple sources, multiple viewpoints on things, but also establishing in your classroom those norms of, you know, what can be debated and what cannot. And then just encouraging people to outsource sometimes, you know, I think that that's so true. Like we can't do everything ourselves. And especially when something happens, you know, 12 hours before you're supposed to be in the classroom, that might be the time to outsource your teaching the next day a little bit. Um, yeah, absolutely. Uh, I love all of that. And I also think it's true that just checking in, it's, so important, you know, and just allowing your students the space to respond to those things. Um, but in a way that you have also established those norms for a long time in your classroom to make sure everybody is being respectful and kind um, in those moments. So that was super helpful, Ashley. Thank you. So um, I want to talk to Carol about 
a program, another program that you use, the ruler program that came out of Yale. Um, and I'm wondering if you could just talk a little bit about it and how your experience with it has helped your work with elementary school students. Yeah, it's, it's been an amazing journey for us. Um, our pyramid, our high school and our middle school have started this program uh, using through the Yale Center of Intelligence. It's called Ruler. Um, but we were approached by the University of Virginia to be a part of a study that they were doing to find out about the effectiveness of this particular approach of the Ruler approach. So um, our first entire year was spent together as a staff learning about the program and doing it with each other only. And then the second year was rolling it out to the kids um, when we really felt confident with it and really understood it well. So this is our second year. So the study is on pause, but we are continue rolling it out, rolling it out with our kids because this kind of thinking is so valuable for them right now. Um, so RULER is an acronym and it stands for how we relate to our emotions. What do we do with them? Um, so it's recognize, understand, label, express, and regulate. And um, students learn explicitly through our instruction with them how to monitor their own feelings, as well as how to recognize the feelings of others. And it's a powerful tool to help guide their thinking and their actions. So when we teach them how to recognize their emotions, um, clearly we're teaching them when they look at others to take in their facial expression and their body language, as well as tone and things like that, but also to recognize it in themselves. How does their body feel when they feel a certain uh, feeling and emotion? Um, and that's powerful stuff, just recognizing an emotion for them when they have it. And then we teach them to understand the causes of the emotion. Um, we want them to notice contextual influences. And then maybe what are some of the consequences of having that feeling? Um, what do they do next after they notice they're feeling like that? And so then we spend a lot of time too helping them label their feelings. We want them to have a, a nuanced vocabulary that covers a wide range of feelings. And you've probably heard name it to tame it. Um, and that's exactly the sort of thinking that we're trying to do with them right now is noticing and naming those feelings. Because then we need to get to the last two parts, which are expressing our emotions. And we talk a lot about cultural norms. We talk a lot about social context text, um, what's appropriate to express and where and how. And um, we talk about emotional labor as well, which is when you are having a feeling, but you need to express a different feeling entirely. And teachers know all about that. We know exactly how to do that. Um, but it does take a, a toll on us. And so we talk about that when you have to have that emotional labor. And then the last thing we try to work with them on is regulating their emotions. And so we don't want to label anything as good or bad. But what we want them to do is recognize what feeling is helpful to them at that moment. And so if a feeling that they're having is unwanted, we want to teach them some strategies for pre preventing or reducing that feeling. And then if they feel like an emotion is serving them in what they're doing right now, then we want them to be able to um, maintain it or enhance it. And so 
um, we use a couple of tools that can help us as we're doing that. Um, I think the most effective is the mood meter, which is um, just a simple tool that we use with the kids. And it allows them to evaluate their emotions based on their level of energy as well as how, how pleasant do they feel as they're having this emotion. And then we can talk to them about labeling their feelings in each of the quadrants. So it's a wonderful tool for self-awareness. Um, but it's a, as a teacher, it's great. I can go, well, tell me where you are on the mood meter right now. And we can almost immediately take the temperature of a classroom um, by having everybody share where they are on the mood meter. Um, it, we can decide if they want to stay in that quadrant or they want to shift. And if they want to shift, we can talk to them about strategies that they can use to shift. Um, and the other tool, which I'll admit that I don't have much experience on with the children, but I just love this idea of understanding that there is stimulus and response. And that when we have that, um, usually the automatic response is maybe not especially helpful always, and that we would like to have a more conscious response. And so we teach them to create a pause in between the stimulus and response. And in that pause, we ask them to visualize their best self and then decide which response is going to support their best self or um, to, to demonstrate what they want for themselves. And so it's a cool tool for them to sort of reflect and be able to um, make better choices if they can just create that pause in between. Um, there's another tool, the blueprint, which I haven't used very much with my students, but I know is really helpful in older grades. Um, it's a conflict management, um, having children uh, use restorative practices through reflection and conferences to help them manage conflicts as they do arrive. But the, the thinking about the emotions and the having the ability to name them and then decide if we want to feel that way and then have strategies if we want to change, it's a powerful tool to use with kids. And I've really been enjoying using it this year. Oh, man. I want to be in your class. That's it's, so it's super pleasant. fun in there. You should come. That sounds so relaxing and pleasant. Um, I may just do that before I go to bed each night from now on. That sounds amazing. Um, no, I love that. And we'll be linking all of this uh, in a follow-up email. Um, so I, I love all of that, Carol. Thank you. So kind of going off of that with sort of navigating students' emotions and navigating what they've been stressing about and stressing with this year especially, Dr. Tolan, I'm wondering if you've seen any sort of trends in students' biggest emotional and social challenges during the pandemic? Well, um, I think the trends we're seeing, you all know, you're experiencing them. You're, and, and as was so aptly noted by Carol, that you're also bringing, dealing with your own emotional reactions to all of this. And as, as you mentioned, the, both events and to the challenges of, of teaching, of trying to keep students engaged. Uh, you know, we, we all know that the disparities are increasing with this current conditions for teaching. I mean, those who have more are getting more of their education and, and those who have less are getting less. And, and you all know the issues about it better than I could by giving you a list. Um, and, and I think maybe that's the way I would respond. I mean, students are having trouble with uh, feeling uh, hopeless or help, you know, being able to feel hopeful and feeling uh, engaged and uh, they're, they're bored <laughs> and they want to 
if, it, if anything, and this is actually from my stepson who teaches social studies, he said that they seem to sometimes just really glad to have something to do and to get engaged, uh, that he, he's found he has fewer behavioral issue problems than he has uh, when he was teaching in the classroom because he says that they're, they're just a, looking for something to do. So, so I think those are the kinds of things. I think a stress model helps a lot, that they're under a lot more stress and things are a lot more, less certain. So they're, and they're just like us, they're experiencing that. They're looking to us to be able to say, uh, are we gonna be okay? And, and, uh, and I think that's an important thing to, to help them understand is that the adults are trying to make things better or paying attention, but also to recognize that these are particularly tough times and for everyone. If, um, you know, the number of them are being affected by directly by the virus in terms of loss of family members or uh, Ill serious illnesses. So I think, so I think some of the extent to which you can in your creativity and, and, your, and your understanding of who you have in your classroom, bring in opportunities to, to I think as Carol Porto uh, identified a bunch of them, being able for them to check in and connect and talk about what's going on with them. And then also to be able to talk about issues, but in a guided way, so that it doesn't get to be a more, uh, if you will, having further harmful impact on them of sort of experiencing the stress more. But, um, and then I think that idea of, of, uh, of allowing them to sort of talk about, you know, what's the best thing that they can do in that circumstance. So we do know about children that when the larger world seems beyond their control, a thing that helps is to think about what they can control because they have even less control over their lives than we do. And um, so I think any any kind of time you can stop and say to, your, to them, you know, what do you think you would like to try and do about this? Um, and then I guess the last tip would, would be the extent to which they can get help and support from each other, not only empathy, but also ideas, you know, that at, at where they can, have an opportunity to say, here's what I did that helped me. And that helps the other people because they can hear that and they can hear see someone like them being able to figure out how to manage uh, those challenges. So we don't, you know, the, the sort of a comprehensive or disorganized list is, is several, probably several years away. <laughs> Post the virus, we'll know uh, what, what the virus impact was and hopefully we can learn. But we do know that that support and that sense of control, uh, if you can help with that and, that's, and that being heard, those are the things that help. Um, absolutely. And I think that's how teachers feel right now too, you know, just from their um, looking to their administration to really just acknowledge that we're all going through a really difficult, hard time, you know, and that helps so much. So I think it's good for us to model that for our students and to give them the space to talk about those things with each other and with us, but to also just, you know, acknowledge when I know myself am giving like homework on top of homework sometimes to just say, okay, let's pause for a minute because y'all have had a really hard week. Let's take a break over the weekend and just have some time to get outside. Um, so I think those are really, you know, important and applicable things that everybody can do. Can I say so, one more thing, which I think is, yeah. I think part of what led us to the Compassion Schools Project, and I think is in programs like Ruhr and these other similar kinds of attempts to try and bring this into school is as much as you can and as much as we can help support you in various ways, that this is as important part of education as reading, as arithmetic. 
Um, and, and I mean, I'm, I'm aware of the achievement tests and all those sorts of things that impose on everyone um, and seem to run most of your lives. But, but the extent to which these can be, there may be a time right now where, where you're advocating for these as a real part of education, not an add-on or not a nice thing to get to, um, could be heard by administrators. And, and so I really want to applaud you for focusing on this. Yeah, thank you for putting out all of those resources for us. We, we really appreciate it and something definitely to lean on at this time. So I just have one more um, question for Ashley. And so everybody uh, who's listening, feel free if you, I know I saw um, a question from Meredith, but feel free to type in the chat. If you have any questions that you would like us to ask, we'll wrap up um, with our questions for the panelists after this. And I'll look to the chat to see if I can ask any of your questions to our panelists. So Ashley, sort of right now, one of the things that I know some of our high school teachers are really worried about, I mean, and with our elementary school students too, of course, in middle school as well, but it's just managing anxiety and promoting mindfulness around sort of the pressures that they are under of, you know, applying to colleges or taking, you know, AP classes or IB classes and dealing with organization, feelings of perfectionism and stuff like that. I'm wondering if you have any sort of strategies that you use um, with your students that might be helpful to um, any of anyone else listening. Yeah, so I will say that um, Dr. Tolan and probably Dr. Tish Jennings at UVA, who's my mentor, have a plethora of resources when it comes to mindfulness um, strategies for the classroom. But I think probably one of the biggest one is reminding your kids to breathe. Like it is okay. So the way that I try to approach my classroom is, will any of this matter in 10 years? Like your SOL test is probably not going to matter in 10 years. And so we're just gonna create a space where you can breathe and it's okay. Um, if you've ever done like yoga, they have breathing techniques. Um, and a lot of times we'll do a three breath exercise, which I think is similar to what they do in compassionate schools um, with the hand in the belly. When I taught middle schoolers, um, this breathing technique of just taking that big breath in through your mouth and releasing, I would have them hold their bellies and try to push out the air so they could actually feel their bodies. But starting class with just a breathing exercise is great. It's meant to calm down the whole nervous system. So it's automatically going to kind of relax the body. And so start with that or some kind of mindful music. I think um, both to what Dr. Tolan and what Carol said is also naming the emotion and telling them that it's okay. Um, social emotional education, I think is um, still very new and I'm excited to see um, where it goes, especially with this pandemic. But I think so many of us don't even know how to name our own emotions and name our own things. And so giving them the space to say, I feel stressed, like, that's okay. You're allowed to feel stressed. Like I feel overwhelmed. It's a pandemic. That is normal. Um, and also teaching students about their bodies. Um, one, they tend to find it fascinating. So I love teaching fight, flight, freeze to my students because they find it so interesting. And they're like, oh yeah, that's how I respond. Um, and reminding them that like the body is created to protect you. That's a beautiful thing. Our brain just sometimes gets messed up because we're not fighting 
dinosaurs anymore. We're in person. And so teaching them those skills um, is huge. I think even with the organization of like, do you have a self-care plan? You know, do you go to it? Do you take time to be outside um, and exercise? And I think reminding them in the connectedness that we really are all in this together. I know there are big talks about learning loss and especially with like college and AP, you can start worry, like freaking out, but everybody's in that thing. You know, colleges are gonna understand that. We've already seen some of those standardized tests going away, thankfully. Um, and so reminding them that they aren't alone in this. Um, circles of control is also another really good one to do with students where you see the two circles. You can find it on the internet of just what can I control in this moment? Um, all these other things I can't control, right? But I can control if I drink my eight glasses of water a day, right? I can control um, putting my phone down for five minutes and debriefing in, you know, our students generation has grown up with the technology. So they're, they're not used to unplugging. They're not used to doing all of that. And so that's why I just think it's so important that if we take the time to teach the skills and that it will go a long way um, and reminding them that it's not, as we've said, it is just as important as academics because you don't want to be an adult in a high pressure job and burn out or you can't be creative if your body is exhausted. Um, those things that, you know, businesses and colleges are gonna look for and being well-rounded, these skills help with that, right? We've gotta know how to communicate and express our feelings. Um, and so it's important, it's just as important as what you're doing. But I think, I know I've said a lot, the two best things are just teaching the skills, teaching them how their body can respond and then just holding the space and saying, we can breathe and we're, we're going to be okay. There is going to be a light at the end of this tunnel and we all are going to make it through. And I know that can be hard for us as teachers if we're not feeling that with um, our jobs because there is so much pressure right now. But the same thing that I would say to them is what I would say to you guys is like, just breathe. We're going to, we're going to make it, we're going to be okay. Um, and holding that space. Yeah. I love that. I think that that is really practical and really important and good for us to all remember, like Katie said in the chat, it is good for elementary students, married people. It's good for <laughs> all of us going to college or wherever we are in our lives, you know, retired, anything. Uh, it's always good for us to be able to name our emotions uh, and definitely something that I think we're all <laughs> in process with. Um, so, oh, go ahead. Oh, I didn't know if I cut anybody off. Um, so oh. one question that I'm seeing here is for any of the panelists uh, from Meredith, what recommendations and strategies do you suggest for how to approach teaching hard history topics in the classroom? So how might we balance the importance of discussing these topics with also dealing with maybe potential anxiety and emotional responses that could trigger any of our students? I don't know if anybody wants to tackle that question right away. You can unmute yourself if you'd like. I can start since I'm unmuted, I guess. Sure. Um, so I would say with hard histories, um, if you set the premise similar to how elementary teachers are really good at doing like their morning meetings, there's a lot of secondary teachers could learn from that. And so I think setting the premise and just setting up 
hey, we're going to be talking about this topic and I recognize that there's going to be different emotions. So let's just take a minute to breathe and kind of relax where we are. Um, maybe even doing a three breaths exercise before you get into the topic and then also establishing really clear guidelines of how this is going to look and saying, so, you know, we're going to have this discussion and we're going to have um, a conversation about X, Y, and Z. I think it's also important that um, student choice in this and to ask teachers to expect the different responses and emotions that might come with that. So if I'm talking about a hard history and my student shuts down, that doesn't necessarily mean that they don't want to participate. And so as I'm kind of going through this routine, I'm gonna be actively looking at my students, kind of assessing the feel of the classroom. Um, and sometimes a student might say, you know, I, I don't wanna talk about this. And I think we have to be okay with that of like, okay, like if you're not in a space to talk, well, maybe you just listen and what does that look like? Um, so I think if you can establish that kind of in the beginning and um, I always like to give my kids some notice a couple of days if we're gonna be doing that. So that way they can kind of prepare as well. So it's not a, oh my gosh, we're talking about this um, shock and all, but hey, like on Thursday, we're gonna be doing this activity. So I just kind of wanna prepare you. That helps them become um, prepared as well. So they're not in the shock and all of kind of that hard history. Yeah, absolutely. Just a little bit of notice can go a long way for sure. Um, so we have another question from Jacqueline. Uh, so any recommendations on favorite books, links for podcasts or articles for learning more about social emotional learning? Um, do any of you three have any sort of favorite uh, sort of articles or podcasts or books that you um, like in particular? I don't, I don't have a particular, those that I'd recommend. I mean, I, I, because I don't, look for the same thing you all would be looking for. But, but there is a what's called the Collaborative for Academic and Social Emotional Learning. So the acronym is C-A-S-E-L, a misspelled castle. Um, and uh, it is dedicated to, to bringing social emotional learning into schools and to working with schools. And it has a wide range of uh, resources for, for uh and connections to most of the uh, work that's being done in social emotional learning around the country is connected through them. So I, I, that's a good place to start, I think. C-A-S-E-L. Uh, and you just do, you know, put it in your web driver and you'll get it. So. Carol or Ashley? Yeah, I would say Castle's probably the guru of social emotional learning and they just updated their standards to include some equity pieces in it, which is really exciting. We're seeing kind of the trend of both of those being tied very well, because as we're self-reflecting for SEL, we're seeing the equity pieces that go along. Um, I know Dr. Jennings, who's my mentor at UVA, has a bunch of books on SEL. Uh, Mindfulness for Teachers is a great one if you're trying to figure out just how to incorporate this for your own work. She's got some around um, trauma and some around pre-K through five mindfulness um, tips as well as a new one, teacher burnout turnaround. So she's truly, I found her because I was doing my own research and I was like, huh, this person, Dr. Jennings, let me find where she is. Um, but there are, I think, a lot of resources out there and Castle is really good at vetting their resources. Um, on their website to make sure they've got the research behind 
them to be approved for a school. So those would be kind of my recommendations as far as SEL stuff goes. Good. Carol, do you have anything that you particularly love? Not especially outside of RC and um, Ruler. Those are, um, there's lots on both of their websites available to you if you're interested in learning more about them. Um, and just remember that you are a part of a group of teachers and the teachers in your building um, have a lot of expertise. And we at Sunrise Valley, I feel really lucky to be there because we lean on each other. And so much of what I know how to do um, is because someone shared it with me, um, you know, in the classroom next door. So we do have obviously a lot of uh, wonderful resources online and in books, but um, each other, it's, it's an important thing to think about. And I would just echo, give yourself a lot of grace when you're first going into this. I'm sure if you look back on your teaching um, career or even what you learned in teacher education, none of this was probably taught. So we're going into some new things. So, you know, as you're talking about emotions and as you're going through these things, give yourself grace um, and start small. You know, like we don't have, you, I don't, I'm not even an expert on this. We're still learning every day. And so just start small with maybe what's one thing that I can do right now, especially in this kind of Zoom world where there's, we're changing constantly, right? And we don't know if we're going to be virtual or this tomorrow or that. It's okay to say, you know what, for this year, I might just start with two practices. I might start with reaching that one kid and then grow it from there. Um, and keep doing the good work y'all are doing because I know being a teacher, it's, it's good and it's hard. Mm. I think that's a great place to end things tonight. Um, so everyone, I just want to thank you so much for joining us tonight. Carol, Ashley, and Dr. Tolan, thank you so much for being with us. This was extremely beneficial, extremely helpful. Um, so, so practical and applicable to all of us uh, for literally tomorrow. <laughs> just amazing. <laughs> Glad to be here. Thank you all for uh, all you do. Really appreciate it. Both as a father and as a, a, a person is interested in trying to help with education. So. Yeah. And we, we just appreciate all of you for coming tonight. And if you're listening to this on YouTube and you have any questions about anything that was mentioned tonight, we're happy to send you a follow-up email as well. But for everyone who attended tonight and registered for this event, we will be sending you a follow-up email with all of the resources that our lovely panelists mentioned tonight. And we will include some other VCSS content in there as well so that you can all stay connected with us. But we really appreciate all of you coming and we hope to see you at our February Scholars Hour, which will be focusing on anti-racist education. So thank you so much for joining us and we'll see you in February. Have a good night. <laughs>